with us this morning. We have a very, very uh, exciting, busy time of year ahead of us. The, the next five weeks are, without a doubt, my favorite five weeks on the calendar every year. Uh, starting with this Thursday, Thanksgiving, then my birthday comes, then Christmas comes, then my wife's birthday comes. It's a great Great time to be a Southern. It's a great time to be a Christian and celebrate Jesus. Um, I, I love this time of year so much. Uh, and so want to make sure you are in the loop about everything that we have going on at City Church to help you celebrate the season. First of all, uh, we have Celebrate with Family as our Christmas Eve candlelight service every year, December 24th. It's going to be 6 p.m. Uh, if you've never been a part of Celebrate with Family, it is... Uh, the best hour and 15 minutes you can spend on Christmas Eve just to, to get you in the, the moment of recognizing and realizing what Jesus has done. We're going to have a candlelight reading of the Christmas story. We're going to have a ton of fun music. Uh, we intentionally gear this service for all ages. So, man, invite your friends, your family, cousins, grandma, whoever it might be. Uh, it's going to be a blast. Then, uh, we also have in your seat, you'll see a green sheet. Naomi, hold that green sheet up so everybody can see it real quick. Naomi's not listening to me. Okay, there we go. Thank you. That's, she's reading it. Uh, so we have a whole collection of Christmas parties for you, and I'm not going to go down through the whole list of, of all the details, but basically we have a Christmas party for Kid City, we have a Christmas party for the 662, and we have a Christmas party for those of us who are too old to qualify for either of those other Christmas parties. Uh, myself included. Uh, so you can get all the details there, the dates, the times, the locations, etc. Uh, it's all right there on that sheet. We'll have it all up online at citychurchob.com this week so you can find uh, details as well if you are not organized and you lose that sheet, uh, as some of us might be prone to do. Uh, so we'll have that online for you as well. But man, join us, celebrate with us, make sure you get the details so that you know where to be and when so you can come Celebrate uh, with your age group and have a blast with us. And then finally, uh, this week, we are celebrating Thanksgiving. And, and the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving here at City Church is we serve and we give. And so uh, tomorrow night, we're, we're having Mission OB. We're going to uh, turn this whole auditorium after service today, actually, into a clothing boutique and give away hundreds and hundreds of pieces of clothes to people who need them. A bunch of our students went out Wednesday night. And, and hit up flyers in a couple of neighborhoods around here that are uh, kind of target neighborhoods where we know there's a lot of need. Uh, and so people have already got the word out. They already know to come if they need clothing. Uh, so that's going to be tomorrow night. You can still bring clothes. If you've got clothes, you're like, oh, man, I forgot to bring them this morning. I was supposed to. It's not too late. You can bring them um, any time from 4 to 6 tomorrow. Just make sure they are here no later than 6. That way we have time to get them organized and, and out. Uh, and ready because the clothing drive will actually officially open at 7 p.m. We're telling all our people to be here by 6 tomorrow because at 6, those of us who are doing the Thanksgiving meals, which is the other part of our outreach, we're taking turkeys and, as you see, six different uh, Thanksgiving sides uh, and a dessert, actually, uh, out to uh, some families who are in need. So if you want to be a part of that, definitely be here by 6 o'clock because we're going to leave uh, just right after 6 and uh, go knock on doors and love on people. This is an amazing thing. Every year we get to pray with people uh, for various needs. We get to see uh, just some really, really incredibly grateful people. If you do the clothing drive, you'll get to pray with people there as well, man. It's amazing the, the needs that people will open up about. By the way, Wednesday night our students, uh, we had one team that went out and passed out flyers, another team that went to local gas stations. And what they would do is when somebody pulled up, 
uh, they would say, they would greet him, say, hey, we're out showing the love of Jesus tonight. Would you mind if we washed your windows while you pumped your gas? And uh, we had one person say no. Everybody else said they would, they would let us wash their windows. Uh, and then they would ask while they were pumping their gas, hey, is there anything we could pray with you about? And we got to pray with like 25, 30, I don't know, maybe more than that, in just like a 45-minute window, people on Wednesday night. There's people in our, our community that need prayer. And we believe that God answers prayer. Uh, and sometimes all you have to do is make yourself available. All you have to do is just ask the question, hey, is there anything I could pray with you about? And, and people will open up and allow you to get into their lives. So tomorrow night, be here, 6 o'clock. We should be done uh, probably 8.30-ish, somewhere in that uh, time frame. Uh, come join us if you're available going to be awesome if you have frozen turkeys um if you have not brought those in please bring those tomorrow uh as of this morning i think we still need about 25 frozen turkeys so i know i told everybody not to bring them till tomorrow so i'm not freaking out that we don't have them but let's make sure they get here uh so if you've purchased those uh get them to us and we will make sure and uh bless someone with those frozen turkeys and uh man i I know people are really going to appreciate that so as we get ready to give uh and prepare ourselves for our time of tithes and offerings. First of all, if you're not, uh, you're a guest with us today, this part of our service isn't for you. All we want from you is just to drop that connection card in. But for those of us that call City Church home, I just want to draw your attention to all this stuff down here. One of my favorite things about what we do at Thanksgiving for Mission OB is we don't have to do a special offering for it. Uh, the church provides all of this stuff. I went out this week and, and picked it all up at Sam's, uh, and I actually, uh, this is a confession, I stole one of these by mistake. Uh, I got 11 of them, and I told the lady I had 10, and she didn't count them. So I was loading up the Jeep, and I realized I had 11, and I was in a hurry, and I was like, oh, no. So I went back in, and I told the, the girl at the door, I was like, I've got to go pay for this. And, of course, the lines are like 45 minutes long. Like, there was nobody in line when I went through. Now everybody's lying. I'm like, really, God? Really, this is your sense of humor? Uh, but thankfully, Sam's has opened up a self-checkout line. Uh, and praise Jesus, I got through the self-checkout line. And so I have my integrity and 11 can, uh, boxes of cookies uh, that have four canisters each. So, uh, but, man, I love that I don't have to say, hey, guys, we got Mission OB coming up. We're going to do a special offering to provide for this. I love that you guys faithfully give and generously give and sacrificially give. And because you do, we're able to provide this. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be an outreach down the road that we do a special offering for. That doesn't mean we may not push uh, at some point in the future. But I think it's great. Well, we don't have to. When just through the overflow, through the abundance of what God's people give to honor him, we're able to bless our community. And we wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do that without you. So thank you and know that your giving is going to make a difference this week. That somebody's life is going to be changed. That somebody's going to receive prayer. That somebody's going to see Jesus in this community because you gave. And that's an awesome, awesome thing. So let's continue to give generously uh, today. Father God, we thank you for the chance to, to honor you in our giving, God, we thank you for this chance to continue to worship you. And I pray, Lord, as we do, that you would take uh, everything that's invested today, that you would use it for your glory. God, I pray for Mission OB this week. God, that for every family that receives a turkey, for every individual who receives clothing, God, that they would not see City Church, but they'd see Jesus. God, that they would be encouraged. Lord, if they're far from you, I pray that you would give us the right words to say, the right understanding to bring them near, God, to, to show them how to take those steps to know you. God, we thank you for those who give today. I pray that you bless them in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen.
We are in a series called What Happens to You When You Die. And last week we kind of built our foundation for the series with, with the truth that you are going to die. I am going to die. Eternity is reality. Uh, and so what we're going to do the next two weeks, we've only got two more weeks for this series, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, we're going to spend a week talking about hell and a week talking about heaven. And as I was putting this series together and kind of figuring out how to piece it together, uh, my first thought, I want to talk about heaven first, right? Like heaven's the good one. Hell's not so much fun. Next Sunday is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Maybe people will be out of town. It'll be a lowest service anyway. So let's talk about hell then when there's not as many people. Get that out of the way. That's my, my natural flesh just talking. Uh, I changed my mind and I, and I switched gears. We're going to talk about hell today and heaven last. And here's why. Last week we got to talk about some good news. That, that when our earthly tent is destroyed, that we are swallowed up in life as Christians. So we started out with good news. Today is going to be kind of the bad news, the negative side of the story. What is hell? What does it look like? What, what happens there? Um, but we're going to do that so that we can finish the series on a high note with, man, what is heaven? What's heaven like? What goes on in heaven? How do we get to heaven? What is that place like? So today we're going to talk about probably the most uncomfortable subject I've ever preached on in my life. Um, I've never done a whole sermon on hell. The only other sermon I've ever done that's this uncomfortable is homosexuality. Uh, I have done that one. I've never done the hell uh, message before. So uh, I know this is going to be awkward for some of you, and here's why. Because this morning we have a production meeting. I've told you guys about it a a few times before if you've been here. Uh, And so I kind of, we meet with the team that shows up early, the worship team, kind of some of the guys who are involved in the media, making sure that the service runs smoothly. Um, and every week we meet and we go over the order of service and we pray. And I kind of tell them a little bit about the service and a little bit about the message. And they're always being eye contact, engaged. Today as I was talking about hell, none of our leaders would look me in the eye. I am not joking. You know who you are in the back. Uh, I won't call you out by name. Uh, but I promise you, I had zero eye contact from the faithful, the ones who show up early, the ones who are passionate about Jesus. This is uncomfortable. This isn't something we enjoy. This isn't something that, that I look forward to preaching. But I believe I need to because I believe, number one, it's the truth. You guys need to know the truth. And number two, you've got friends, you've got family who are going to ask you questions who'd never go to church. And you need to be empowered with the truth. And so today we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about my opinion. Today we're going to spend a lot of time in the Bible. I mean, I, this might be the most verses I've ever used in a single sermon in my life. Uh, because you need to know what God's word says about hell. You need to know what Jesus has to say about this place. And I don't want to empower you with that. And I believe that as we learn the good news, it's going to make the good, excuse me, as we learn the bad news, it's going to make the good news that much greater. When you really realize what you've been saved from, it makes what you've been saved to that much sweeter. It makes what Jesus did for you that much more amazing. And so I want you to see today, uh, what does the Bible say about hell? Before we do, I want to give you a couple statistics uh, about kind of where America is at right now. Uh, Current Gallup poll statistics say this, 81% of Americans believe in heaven. 81%, very strong majority of Americans, a little over four and five, believe in heaven. 70% of Americans believe in hell. So we've got 81% that believe there is a heaven, 70% 70% that believe there is a hell. So there's 11% of Americans that think there's a heaven, but no hell. Um, and 
Uh, beyond that, there, there's a, a large percentage as well, and we don't know the exact number, that believe that there is a heaven. They believe hell exists, but they don't believe that anybody is going to go there. They believe that hell is just for Satan and his demons and, and that ultimately all people will end up in heaven. And so there, there's a disconnect there. We, we like to believe in heaven. We're not so excited about believing in hell. I'm not either. Man, if you've ever wrestled with that question, how could there even be a hell? I've wrestled with that question. I've had to weigh that out. I've had to pray through that. And again, it really comes down to what does the Bible have to say? Not only do only 70% of Americans believe in heaven or believe in hell, but check this out. Um, when they asked, how many of you think you're going to heaven? What are your chances? Uh, 77% rated their chances of going to heaven as good or excellent. So 81% believe in heaven. 77% of those 81, hey, I'm going there. I'm going to be there, which is pretty cool. Um, just 19% said their chances of making it to heaven were just fair or poor. So um, less than 20% of Americans think, I don't have a real good chance of making it to heaven. But when the question's asked about hell, how, what do you think the chances are that you go to hell? Here's the answer. Only 6% of Americans said that I'm going to hell, good chance or excellent chance. And uh, there's a high number. 79% said that I have a very low or poor chance. Of going to hell. So we believe it exists, some of us, but nobody believes they're going there. Uh, of course, if you believed you were going there, you would probably make some changes to your life. You'd probably do some things differently. And so it is not our favorite topic in America, but I want to answer three questions about hell this morning. I know we all have some. I know we all wrestle with some. I know that we've all had to deal with this. And so I want to give you from Scripture the answers to three questions about hell. The first question and the title of our message and really the, the, the thing that's going to be kind of the, the framework for the entire message today is this question. Is hell for real? Is hell for real? There are people who would call themselves Christians out there who would tell you the answer to that is no. There are people who would call themselves Christians out there who would tell you, yes, hell is for real, but none of us go there. It's just for the demons. It's just for Satan. In fact, there was a book that was written not too long ago, uh, maybe five years ago, by a guy named Rob Bell, uh, who was a pastor in Michigan. And Rob Bell uh, wrote this book uh, called Love Wins. And if you're familiar with the book at all, you know that Rob basically took the stance that God's love is so powerful and God is so good that nobody is going to end up in hell. I read the book. I uh, went to, Barnes, or to Books a Million, checked it out for a minute, and next thing I knew, two hours had gone by and I'd read the whole book. Uh, it, it's really interesting. It's a really cool read. It's a really nice idea. It's a great thought. The problem is it's not true. Uh, the problem is it's not what the Bible says. Um, but is hell even real? Well, let's see what God has to say about this. Luke chapter 16 is going to be our first passage to turn to. Go ahead and go there. Uh, and then you can go ahead and flip as well to Mark chapter 9 and put a mark there because uh, those are going to be our first two sections of Scripture today. So start with Luke 16 and Mark chapter 9. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospels this morning. Luke 16, Jesus is telling a parable. And this is his most direct, explicit parable that t tells us about hell. We're going to find a few principles, a few truths about eternity in this parable. Starting in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple. Purple was the color of royalty. It was the color of nobility. It was very, very expensive. It was the hardest. 
In the ancient world, purple was the hardest, world, uh, hardest color to make clothes dyed to. It was the most expensive dye. And so only the very wealthy wore purple. Um, he was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell. You're good. Go ahead. Just give you a second. All right. Verse, uh, verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is a euphemism for heaven. It was uh, the, the Jews considered uh, Abraham uh, the father of their nation. He was kind of one of the people who was the guardian of heaven. And so Jesus is using their expression for heaven here. He was carried to Abraham's side. The rich man also was died and was buried. Verse 23. In hell, where he was in torment, he being the rich man, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So we see here that hell is a place where you still have your full faculties. You are aware of what's happening to you. It's not a place where your consciousness just kind of drifts away. Uh, it is a place where you know exactly what you're experiencing. Verse 25. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Hell is eternal. Eternity is reality. Once you go there, you cannot get out. I know one of our city groups uh, had some discussion this past week about eternity, and that was one of the questions that came up in your group. Uh, and we can say with, with confidence, based on Jesus' teachings, that if you go to hell, you're not getting out. You're, you're not going to have the option saying, you know what, I changed my mind. This isn't where I want to be. Um, we can see very clearly Lazarus would love, to, or no, the rich man would love to make that decision. But he doesn't have that option. Verse 27, he answered, he began being the rich man. Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. If he can't come to me, send him to earth, to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. We see here in hell that the rich man has full memory of his life. He has full memory of his family. He has full knowledge that they're still alive. And that he realizes that this place that he is is not the place that he wants his family to go. Once you've experienced a moment in hell, once you've gone there, you would do anything to keep the people you love from spending a minute there themselves. So he begs him, please send him to my brother's, send him to my father's house. Also, notice that in hell, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 29, Abraham replied, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, Moses symbolic of the law, the prophets is symbolic of the, the prophetic books after Moses, uh, is five books. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, they have the Old Testament, basically, he's saying. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he, say, he said, they're not going to listen. 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will, what's the word? Repent. Notice that in hell, the rich man has complete understanding that the only way for his loved ones to not end up the same place he is is for them to repent from their sins. In hell, he clearly realizes there is one way to avoid this fate. And I didn't do it. I didn't repent. I didn't turn from my sins. I didn't acknowledge that I was a sinner and turn away from them. He says, please send somebody from the dead. If somebody comes back from the dead to them, then they'll repent. Verse 31, he said to him, if you do not listen to Moses, if they did not listen to the Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus is doing a little foreshadowing here. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead yet, but he's going to. And he says, hey, if you discarded the Old Testament, if you disrespected the prophets, if you didn't believe the miracles that God did through Moses, if that wasn't enough for you, me coming back from the dead is not going to be enough for you either. And the sad truth is many who were there in Jesus' day and age, many who lived there in Israel, religious Jewish people rejected the risen Christ, just as Jesus prophesied that they would. They wouldn't listen to somebody who'd even come back from the dead. So why does Jesus tell this parable? He wants to warn us. He wants to stop us. He wants to rescue us. He wants us to know that there is an awful place that is a real place that some people are going to spend eternity, and it is not his will for you to go there. It is not his desire for you. It is not his best for you. It is not what he created you for. And so he wants to warn you very directly, very clearly, very explicitly that this place stinks. This place is miserable. This place is awful, and you don't need to go. Don't let it happen. This offends some of us because we think, I don't deserve to go to a place like that. I'm a pretty good person. I lived a pretty good life. I don't deserve to spend eternity in torment and agony. We, we don't like that a place like this could exist. But I want to present to you this rhetorical bottom line question. If hell isn't real, why did Jesus spend so much time talking about it? If hell's not real, why did Jesus die to keep us from going there? Why would he have gone through everything he did on the cross If hell wasn't a reality, I believe very strongly that it is. And I believe that Jesus talked about it quite a bit. Maybe you're like, well, I don't know. When else did Jesus talk about it? Maybe this is the only spot. It's not. Mark chapter 9, we'll find another passage where Jesus discusses hell. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 48, talking about judgment and hell. Jesus says this. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, little ones being children, he's talking about people who hurt children or negatively influence children. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. This is like mafia stuff. Like you're going to swim with the fishes. We'd be better than if you hurt a child. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life, that being life eternal. You're already in life. So he's saying to enter life maimed than it is with two hands to go to hell. 
where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Notice he keeps saying thrown into hell. Nobody goes to hell willingly. They have to throw you there. Nobody realizes what it is, realizes this place actually exists, and says, that's where I want to be. Man, I know the 80s, all the heavy metal rockers, they were all about hell. They're on the highway to hell. All that fun stuff. We're going to party in hell. We're going to party with the devil. No. They're going to hate it if they don't turn before they get there. It's not going to be a place that anybody goes to willingly. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where, and now he quotes an Old Testament passage that we're going to read in a few minutes. He says, to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, here in Mark 9, Jesus isn't telling a parable. He's not telling an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He's speaking directly to his people about the reality of hell. And he's saying, this is what it is going to be like. It's going to be a place where, where the worm is never satisfied, where a worm just continues to eat and eat, where the fire never is quenched, where it's never put out. And so what he's doing is he's comparing hell to a place. There, there's a couple of different words that are used interchangeably with hell in the New Testament. One of them is Hades. Hades was actually the Greek word for hell. So when Luke wrote his book, he used the Greek word because he was writing to Gentiles. And so they had a picture of what hell would be like. They called it Hades. And so he used that picture to, to paint the accurate picture of what hell was really going to be like. So he called it Hades. Well, here in Mark, uh, Jesus uses a different word for hell. He uses the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is an actual earthly place. Um, if you've ever uh, studied up on Israel, studied up on Jerusalem, or maybe had taken a trip to Jerusalem, one thing I would love to do at some point in my life, I've not reached that on my bucket list yet, uh, but at some point I would love to. But there's a, an actual place called Gehenna. And what, Jerusalem is surrounded by two valleys. One of those valleys is called the Kidron Valley, and the other valley is called the Valley of Gehenna. And in ancient times, in Jesus' day and age, Gehenna was very well known. Anybody he was talking to would know what it was. Gehenna was the city dump. It was the trash dump. And so what they would do is they would take all their trash out of Jerusalem and they would put it in this valley of Gehenna. They would take dead animals, animal carcasses, and they put them in this valley. Occasionally, they would even take dead human remains and put them in this valley. If it was somebody who was unclean that they couldn't bury, they would just put the body out in the valley of Gehenna. And just like pretty much we haven't advanced very far in our day and age, back then if you've got a trash dump, if you've got a landfill, the only thing that they could do to get rid of the trash was to what? Burn it. So they set the trash, the animal carcasses, the human remains on fire. And there was so much of it, it was constantly being replenished. They were constantly bringing trash out from the city that the fire never went out constantly refueled it was constantly going so what jesus is doing most likely he's standing within eye shot of gehenna as he's talking and he's using an object lesson he's saying hell eternity is going to be a lot like that it's going to be a place where, where the fire never goes out i don't know if you've ever made this mistake i've made it where you uh you have your trash can and you leave the trash can lid open 
and there's like maybe some meat or something in there. If you ever make that mistake, you'll find this out very quickly. Flies are attracted to trash. Uh, maybe you don't know that, but it's just a, you can file that one away for next spring and summer. Flies like trash. And so they'll come in there and they fly around and then what do they do? They lay eggs. And those legs hatch. And what are they when they hatch? Worms. Maggots. And what do those maggots do? They start to eat. They start to consume anything they can find. This is what Jesus is talking about. There's a valley right there with a fire that never goes out, with a never-ending supply of worms that never stop consuming and eating. And he says, this is the worst place that you know of on earth. This is the worst place that you're aware of. So I'm going to use that to illustrate what hell's going to be like. Now, I don't know if 100% is 100% literal or how much of it is metaphorical, but I know this. Heaven is far beyond anything we can imagine on the positive side. And I believe hell is going to be far beyond anything we can imagine on the negative side. I don't believe it's actually exactly what Jesus described. I think it's probably a lot worse. That was the best description that he could give them that their earthly minds could comprehend of what hell would actually be like. This is what happens in hell. There's a fire that never, ever goes out. So Jesus is saying, let me tell you, don't go there. Don't die apart from my gospel. Don't die apart from my truth. Don't die apart from my salvation. Because this place is miserable and it's terrible and it's awful. And I don't want to see you end up in a place like that. So our first question is hell for real. Well, our answer to that question is, according to Jesus, yes, it is. So therefore, I believe, yes, it is. Jesus is very clear in his teaching that hell exists, and it's a place that you don't want to end up. I heard a story this week that that I thought was super interesting. Uh, There's uh, a radio show on NPR, and and it's hosted by a guy named Terry Gross. And a couple years back, Terry Gross had a very famous American entertainer on his show. And he had this famous American entertainer on the show, and I'll tell you who it was after I tell you the quote. Uh, But he asked the entertainer, he said, uh, what do you think happens in hell? What's hell like? What do you you believe about hell? And so this famous American entertainer tells this story. I'm going to read this story to you because I think it's so profound. He says, my son asked me one day, Dad, what's hell? So I said, well, if God is love, then hell is the absence of God's love. And can you imagine how great it is to be loved? Can you imagine how great it is to be loved fully, to be loved totally, to be loved, you know, beyond your ability to even imagine? And then imagine if you knew that was a possibility, and then that was taken from you, and you knew that you would never be loved, well, that's hell, to be alone and to realize what you lost. That American entertainer was Stephen Colbert. The Colbert Report on Comedy Central, he's the guy who's going to be taking over for David Letterman when Letterman retires next year. Stephen Colbert gave this most profound answer about hell. Hell is the absence of God's love. And not only is it the absence of his love, it's the place where you have full realization of what God's love was and what that love was available to you and how that love pursued you and chased you and came after you. Time and time and time again, and yet you rejected it, and you ran from it. And now, 
not available to you any longer. What a beautiful and horrible description of a place like hell. Is hell for real? According to Jesus, absolutely it is. So if hell is for real, the next question naturally becomes this. Who goes to hell? If it's there and it exists, if it is a literal place and a physical reality, who ends up in hell? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because we need to answer that question. And this this idea of hell uh, can make us very disturbed. Most of us would agree that a guy like Hitler deserves to go to hell, right? Like we all hate Hitler. Hitler unites everybody. Doesn't matter your, your race, your gender, your age, what you've been through, your religion. Everybody's like, yeah, Hitler's in hell. We all agree with that. Uh, we're all okay with that. Maybe like uh, serial killers like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer. We agree that those awful people, they probably deserve to go to hell. Osama bin Laden, like, you know, terrorists, like we're pretty much in agreement. Somebody like that, they deserve to suffer for the destruction they brought to so many. They killed millions of people or thousands of people or many people. This is a place that they belong. Most of us understand that, but here's what we have to realize. Even though I'm not Hitler, I'm not Bin Laden, I'm not Bundy or Dahmer, apart from the grace of God, I'm capable of some very, very heinous things. Apart from the grace and the goodness and the salvation of Jesus, I'm capable of some really awful, awful stuff. And so are you. See, the Bible says that there's no one righteous, not even one. The book of Isaiah tells us that my righteousness is like filthy rags. See, a lot of us believe that, that who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to hell? Well, good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The problem with that is if you believe that, nobody's good. That's what the Bible teaches. If you believe good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, then we are all jacked. Everybody's going to hell. Nobody's making it into heaven because none of us are good. So, uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So it can't be good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, or else we're doomed. So God sent the good one to die for the bad one so that the bad one could have access to the good one. And that's the gospel in a nutshell right there. So we've got to, to realize that hell is not about bad people go there. And good people don't. The truth is, all of us were destined there until God intervened and provided an escape. So, who, who really goes to hell? Well, the answer in Scripture is very simple. Um, it's those who haven't trusted in Jesus. Those who haven't repented. Those who haven't embraced the good news and the gospel. All of us would go to hell apart from that. And if you've never repented, and repent means to, to turn away, from your sin and to turn to Jesus, if you've never done that and rejected your life and your mistakes and come to Him, then the answer very well could be you. The answer very well could be you are on your way to that place right now. In fact, I would say that it probably is. The good news is you can change that very quickly. You can embrace His truth and His goodness and His grace and His gospel. Repent from your sins and turn to Him. Final question for us this morning. Uh, excuse me. So first, the answer to that question, who goes to hell? The answer is Satan, his demons, and unrepentant sinners. Uh, Satan, his demons, and unrepentant sinners. Turn to Matthew 25. We're going to see another story that Jesus tells uh, about eternity, about judgment. And we're going to discover something really important uh, that, that you need to know about hell. 
in this passage. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. Notice that when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to, to hang out. He's not coming back to have a tea party. He's coming back to take over. When Jesus returns, he's coming back to take a throne. Uh, he's coming back in power. He's coming back in glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The, the right is the place of power. It's the place of authority. It's the place of favor in Scripture. And the left is the opposite of that. It's the place of rejection, the, the place of, of a lack of power and authority. Uh, verse 34, uh, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Don't miss this. God prepares heaven for you. God's prepared heaven for you. Jesus, in the book of John, I believe in chapter 14, he tells his disciples, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you in heaven. Throughout eternity, he's been preparing a place for you. I don't know what a place that Jesus has been eternally preparing for me looks like, but I bet it's pretty amazing. And I don't want to steal too much from next week's sermon, but that's really encouraging to me. That God's preparing heaven for his people. God did not prepare hell for you. God prepared hell for Satan. See, when Satan and his demons rebelled in heaven, God cast them out of heaven. That's when he created hell as a place where Satan will pay an eternal price for rebelling against God and trying to take over the throne. Hell was not prepared for people. Hell was not created for people. Hell was not designed for people. Hell was designed for Satan. A lot of times in, in literature and movies and stuff, we get this picture of hell as this place where Satan rules and he's tormenting people. And it might be like that right now, but for eternity, Satan himself will be tormented, tormented there. He will be cast into a lake of fire, and he's going to pay the price for his rebellion against God. Uh, so, so it's not necessarily what we always picture, but hell wasn't prepared for us. Verse 35, and this is completely coincidental. That, not coincidental. It's coincidental on the earthly level. It's totally God that this is this. We're doing a mission OB tomorrow, and we're going to feed some people, and we're going to close some people, and we're going to find out what God thinks of that. It wasn't tied. We didn't time this sermon to be t- today. It just worked out that way in God's timing. Verse 35, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you lived after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord. Remember, this is a, this is a, look, a pre-look into Judgment Day. It's a prophecy about Judgment Day. The righteous answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? I don't remember. I don't ever remember seeing you like that. I never knew you were hungry. I never knew you were naked. I never knew you were sick or you were in prison. When did I ever do this, God? And verse 40 says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So we see, you are not saved by works, but there is a correlation between what you do and where you go. It's not a causation. In other words, you don't get to heaven because you did those things. But if you receive life, if you receive Jesus, if you repent from your sins, you will do these things. That's the evidence of what God's done in your life. It's the evidence of the salvation you've received. You will live this out. You will care about the sick, about the poor, about the naked, about the hungry. You will have the same heart that God has. And God cares about those. 
So there's a direct correlation between our actions and our salvation. It is not a causation. I don't earn my salvation. You can't come tomorrow night and pass out some turkeys and give some people some coats and say, sweet, I'm going to heaven. It's not how it works. But if you love Jesus, that's the kind of thing you're going to want to be a part of. That's the kind of thing you're going to say, I can't wait to sign up to do this because I have his heart and he loves these people. And I know that as I do it for them, ultimately I'm doing it for him. That's a beautiful, amazing thing. Verse 41, then he'll say to those on his left, these are the goats, the people who are going to be judged by their deeds. Depart from me, you who are cursed. Remember what Colbert said? The absence of love, knowing you're loved unconditionally and amazingly and rejecting it and spending eternity apart from that love, no longer having access to it knowing that the loving and gracious God sent his son to die for your sins so that you could freely go into heaven, that he freely gave himself away to you, having a realization of that, but being separated from it for eternity. He says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The fire of hell was not prepared for you. It wasn't. God didn't design it for you. He didn't design it for me. He didn't design it. For somebody on the other side of the world, he designed it for Satan and his demons, for rebelling against God. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hell is the realization that there's a loving, amazing, incredible God who pursued you and came after you because you were stubborn, because you chose not to repent, because you resisted him, because you wanted to run your life and didn't want to submit it to anybody's instruction because you wanted to date who you want, sleep with who you want, Drink what you want, do what you want, show up what you want, because you wanted to be in charge, because you wanted to be in control, and you would not yield your will to the God who loves you. Hell is the place that you'll spend forever knowing, not just suffering, but knowing what you missed out on, knowing what you could have had. It's an awful, awful place to go. Let me take you to another passage here very quickly. Turn to Isaiah Chapter 66, because hell's not just a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea, idea as well that we need to be aware of. Isaiah 66, verses 22 through 24. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your descendants endure. From one new moon to another, one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Listen to this. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they'll be loathsome to all mankind. Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, was quoting from Isaiah 66. There's a place where those who are unrepentant, those who don't love God, those who've rejected him in life, will go and they will spend eternity with a fire that will not be quenched and a worm that will not die. A lot of times we say, okay, how can a loving God send people to hell? How could a loving God allow somebody to suffer like this? And it, it's a tough question. I've dealt with it myself. 
But I think if we dig into it a little deeper, we, we realize that it, that it kind of has to be this way. Because you see, if in life we reject God and we say, I don't want to submit to you. I don't want your rules. I don't want to bow down before you. I don't want to worship you. I don't want what you have. Could a loving God say, even though you don't want me in life, I'm going to make you spend eternity with me? That wouldn't be loving. That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be just. The only just response for God is to say, if in life you rejected me, you gave me the finger, you said, I don't want you, I don't care about your rules, I don't care about your your laws, I don't care what you want from me, I'm going to do it my way. Just say, okay, you don't have to have me. You can spend eternity far away from me as you can get. I'm not going to make you come to a place where everybody worships me. I'm not going to make you come to a place where everybody loves me. I'm not going to make you come to a place where I'm glorified constantly. No, I'm a big Washington Huskies football fan, and there's a a message board community that I'm a part of uh, that I check out sometimes just to kind of see what's going on with with UW football. And there's a guy on one of these boards, his name's Jim Cornell, and and they call him Little Jimmy. It's a whole other story, but we'll just call him Little Jimmy for now. Uh, Well, Little Jimmy hates Christians. And, uh, and he constantly posts, like, anytime an athlete gives glory to God or thanks God for something, it, it bothers him. It angers him. And he'll go in. And so Monday night, Derek Carr, the quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, the Raiders won their first football game in, like, 17 years. Uh, terrible, terrible team. So they won a game, and Derek Carr, after the game on Monday night football, all glory to Jesus. So grateful to God that he allowed this to happen. Just very, very sincere believer, this rookie quarterback for the, the Raiders. And, uh, and so Cornell goes to the board immediately. I can't, you know, just angry, upset. And, and I've tried to encourage him and try to talk to him. And it, so far I've been a massive failure at that. Um, we'll see if that ever changes. But for a guy like that, to go to a place like heaven, where all we're doing is praising God, where all we're doing is thanking God, where all we're doing is celebrating his presence, it wouldn't be heaven to him, it'd be hell. And so a just and a loving and a good God, apart from him repenting and turning from God, and I hope he does. He hasn't died yet, but it's not over for him. There are much more radical transformations that have taken place. He is not too far for God to get in, and I hope he does. But for a guy who that's his attitude on earth, how can you ever force him to be in heaven with you? God can't do that. Because he's good and because he's loving, he has to say, this place is not for you. So the final question today as we wrap up, probably the most important question of them all, how can you avoid hell? How can I avoid hell? How can we keep from going there if this place really exists and if it's really this awful? How do I make sure that I'm not one of them? It's real simple. Simple to do, but it's so hard to do because it cuts against our flesh. It cuts against our sin nature. If you want to avoid hell, repent and turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus. That's it. That's the recipe. It sounds really, really easy. But the reality of it is so difficult. And, and so many of us have watered this down at times, and I'm sure I've been guilty of this myself. If we ever preach salvation apart from repentance, we've missed it. And I'm sure I've done it, and I repent to you for any time that I've, I've maybe left that out by mistake. Yes, we need to give our life to Jesus. Yes, we need to declare him. All those things. But you've got to repent. Repentance is part of the process. And it has to happen. And so if you've never repented, if you just said, hey, I want to be a Christian, I want Jesus to come live in my heart. That sounds so sweet. I want to go to heaven. Those are great things, but they don't happen apart from repentance. 
They don't happen apart from lowering myself and humbling myself and saying, God, I'm a wretched sinner, and I've blown it, and I'm messed up. Would you please, in your grace and your mercy, forgive me for my sin and make me new? And that's how we avoid hell. So the answer is you avoid hell when you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus. Matthew seven thirteen and 14 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Unfortunately, that broad way, the big open gate, is full of people bound for destruction. But Jesus says if you want to escape destruction, you must choose the narrow way. There's only going to be a few of us who will make it, so how do we get there? How do we avoid that broad path that leads to destruction? We find the answer to this in Acts 17. Paul is talking to the wisest, greatest philosophers in all of Greece. He's in the city of Athens. And there in the city of Athens, he's meeting with and debating with, with these brilliant minds on Mars Hill. And, and here in Acts 17, uh, what he's telling them is, is the key is to repent. You've got to repent. I've got to repent. I've got to turn from who I am. That, that God calls all of us to repent. That God calls, uh, God calls gossips to repent of their gossip. God calls the religious to repent of their religion. God calls the, those who are legalistic to repent of their legalism. God calls those who have gotten sexual sin to repent of their sexual sin. And that's not just homosexuality. That's pornography. That's lust. That's the guy who looks twice at the girl who walks by. That, that's, man, it's all of us. He calls all of us to repent. He says, you have got to turn away. If you want to walk in eternal life, if you want to know God, here's how you do it. Let me read you the actual passage. Acts 17, 30 and 31. He said, in the past... God overlooked such ignorance. Before Jesus, there was some grace here because people didn't know better. But now that Jesus has come, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Scoreboard. Talked about it last week. What's the proof? How do we know that this is for real? Because there's an empty tomb, and that's our scoreboard. He says he's given proof of this because he raised this man, this man being Jesus, from the dead. That's how we know. And Paul had seen the risen Lord with his own eyeballs. He was an eyewitness to the truth. And he met many, many, many other eyewitnesses. The tomb is empty. We've got scoreboards. So how do you avoid hell? You repent of your sins just like God commanded you. Trust in Jesus the righteous judge of all. He wants us to repent of our sin now. Now, if you're a Christian today, you don't have to repent of your sin again to be saved. You don't have to repent of your sin again. Jesus forgave all your sins, cleansed you the moment you received salvation. However, repentance for us does bring healing. First John says, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. So as a Christian, when I sin, I get junk in me. I get stuff in me. I get crud that's going to hold me back, that's going to prevent me from, from hearing God clearly, from following him clearly. So I have a daily habit of repentance, or I try. I wish I could. I don't have a daily habit of repentance. I need a daily habit of repentance. I aspire to a daily habit of repentance. We need to daily repent, not so that I get saved again. Not because, man, if I didn't repent, now I'm going to hell, and now I'm saved, and now I'm going to hell, and now I'm saved. That's not it. But simply so that I can be healed, so that I can be restored. First John 1 John 1.9 puts it this way. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Forgiven people don't go to hell. Cleansed people don't go to hell. Saved people don't go to hell. Righteous people don't go to hell. True disciples of Jesus don't go to hell. How do I avoid hell? I repent and I trust in Jesus. It happens when you confess your sins. You turn away from your sins and you turn to Christ. Revelation 20.10 tells us that at the end of time, on Judgment Day, there's going to be a day that will come when God is going to take Satan and he's going to cast him along with the beast, along with the false prophet, into the lake of fire. And listen to what it says. It says, There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end of the book. That's the way it ends. That's what God prepared hell for. For those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. But Satan's taken some people with him. That's his goal. He knows where he's headed. He knows the end for him. He's well aware of how the story ends. He's read the end of the book himself. But he wants to take people with him. So what do we do with this? How do we handle this? If you're not a Christian today, repent. Just repent. You don't have to go to hell. You don't need to go to hell. Jesus died so you don't go to hell. It's amazing. It's true. If you are a Christian today, I'm trying to figure out how to best wrap this up, how to best encourage you. Let me tell you a story from my past as we close today, and maybe this will help make some sense. When I was a young kid, I was probably like three years old. Um, I was playing. My, my parents were out on a date, and I was staying home with my older brother and older sister. My brother was like 15. My sister was like 13. Um, so they were watching me, and we lived in Seattle, Washington. We had a wood-burning stove in the center of our living room. Not like out in the very middle of the living room, but against the wall in the middle. Uh, and so it was wintertime, and we would use that because my dad was cheap and didn't want to use the power and the heat, so we used the wood-burning stove. So I'm playing Legos, and I got this Lego spaceship, and I'm playing with my brother and having a blast or whatever, and John's sitting over in the corner, and I'm coming by the wood-burning stove, and I come in like this. In that moment, my brother realizes I'm headed for a nasty burn. Uh, And in that moment, he needed to do three things. He needed to warn me, stop me, rescue me, and he'd do something to keep me from hitting that fire. And I wish I could tell you that he did but he didn't. Uh, and in that moment, he watched me put my wrist on that wood-burning stove, and I, I, this is probably my earliest memory of life. I remember the skin scorched off of my wrist that high. I remember my sister rushing me into the bathroom, trying to pour cold water on it in the sink, getting out the butter, because for some reason people think butter is going to help. Uh, so now I've got, like, toast on my arm. Uh, thanks, sis. Um, my parents got home. They rushed me to the ER. It, it, was a, it was a rough thing. I remember when they had to cut off the dead skin and just being terrified. And yet that's a pretty minor. My arm healed. I don't have major scarring. I'm not, like, tormented by it. I don't go to bed and, like, have dreams about a wood-burning stove. Like, I'm good, right? I wish you'd have kept it from happening, but it's okay. But how many of us know somebody who's moving towards... How many of us know somebody and we can see it coming and they're too young or too ignorant or too oblivious to the truth and they don't know where they're heading, but we're older and we're big enough and we realize the truth because we've discovered the truth because we have the truth because we've read the truth. What are you doing to stop them? Are you warning them? Are you stopping them? Are you rescuing them? What are you doing to prevent them from ending up in a place where they're going to be burned. 
You see, God takes hell so serious that he left heaven and came to earth to die a sinner's death, a miserable death, a painful death, a nasty death, a humiliating death, so that I don't have to go there, so that I can be warned, so that I can be stopped, so that I can be rescued, and so that you could be. And now that we've been stopped, now that we've been warned, now that we've been rescued, he sends us out and he says, now go and warn them and stop them and rescue them because hell is forever and eternity is for real. And nobody has to go there. And I hate to get so fired up on you, but God told me today, somebody in this room needs to wake up. You're saved, and you're good, and it's great, and praise God for it. But someday you're going to need to wake up and care about the people who aren't. Sometime you're going to have to put some action behind that reality. At some point, you're going to have to begin to put your money where your mouth is. You're going to begin to have to put your time into the truth. You're going to have to begin to pray and intercede for people, because if you don't, they're going to hit the fire. I don't like that truth. I don't get excited to tell you that. But I believe with all my heart that it is certain. And God rescued you and prevented you from having to experience the flames so that you could be on his team and go rescue somebody else. Do it. Begin to pray that he would use you. Begin to pray that he would open doors. Begin to evaluate who in your world needs to hear the truth and boldly go out And warn them, stop them, rescue them. Because you might be the only one that has the opportunity to do it. Jesus came to save us. And now that he has, he's telling us to get out there and help him save the rest. Because it's God's will that no one would have to spend eternity in hell. And I'm glad I serve a God. I'm glad I serve a God who is loving, who is good, and who would allow me to be a part of his rescue mission.